This is Stephanie Nelson, host of the Pivotal People podcast. We have great conversations with all kinds of interesting people who are making a difference in the world. Follow us and leave a review if you like this episode so that more people can find us. Thanks for listening. Well, I'd like to welcome Jonathan Merritt to the Pivotal People podcast. Let me tell you about Jonathan. He is one of America's most popular religion writers. He has actually written 3,500 articles, probably more than that now, in respected outlets like USA Today, The Washington Post, BuzzFeed, Christianity Today, and The New York Times. He's also a respected voice. He has been interviewed and listened to this wide array of media outlets, ABC World News, CNN, and Fox News, MSNBC, PBS, NPR, and CBS The 60 Minutes. We're talking to him today because he is the author of multiple books, including the critically acclaimed book, Jesus is Better Than You Imagined. I love that title. He has been named one of the 30 young influencers reshaping Christian leadership. So I am so excited. And now he's on the Pivotal People podcast. Oh my God. Jonathan, are you going to add that to your bio? Okay. Oh, I need Thanks. it. I need to update it. Thank you so much for having me on. It's great to have you. And the reason I asked Jonathan to come on is because I just picked up one of his books. It came out a few years ago, but I picked it up from our church's bookstore and it's recommended by our pastor, Andy Stanley. And it's called Learning to Speak God from Scratch, Why Sacred Words are Vanishing and How We Can Revive Them. And I thought, what is that about? I picked it up, and as I said to Jonathan before we started, this is the book we all need to read. Jonathan, I'm going to turn it over to you to tell us about yourself and why you wrote this book. There's so many questions I have about it. Oh, gosh. Well, you know, I wrote that book a few years ago when I moved. I relocated from outside of Atlanta, Georgia, not too far from where your church is located, to New York City. And it really led to an awakening. Uh, I began to realize that not everyone understands some of the sacred words that uh, people of faith use to express their experiences of life. And other people may understand those words, but they think they mean something a bit different than you do. So there can be confusion when you're trying to talk about God things. I discovered that many people don't like those kinds of words, sacred words, religious words, moral language, and they shrink back. Maybe they've been hurt by that kind of language in the past. And so they, they're sort of triggered by spiritual speak. And uh, that raised a whole bunch of questions for me. Does it matter? whether we speak God or not? Can't we just sort of believe what we believe in private? Why do we have to say anything out loud? If we don't speak God, does that matter? Does it change the world? Does it change us? Do the words that we use have any impact on the world that we create? And if we do think that it matters, what would it look like to speak God again in a in a life-giving way, in a way that doesn't trigger people, in a way that's helpful and, and responsible? And so that was sort of the journey of this book. And as you know, it's obviously, it interweaves a lot with my life. And then the second half of the book is just sort of essays on different spiritual words. And that's really why I wrote Learning to Speak God from Scratch. 
Well, it opened my eyes to a number of things. Um, I mean, I could certainly relate to it. So for example, you talked about, here's a quote, the way certain groups of people use sacred words gives the rest of us the holy heebie-jeebies. Mm-hmm. So it's almost, and Jonathan, I told you, I also, I live in Atlanta in the Bible Belt, so I'm very familiar with different types of churches. We've been to different types of churches and different groups of believers, you know, Jesus followers. It's interesting how you said that of the people who identify as Christians, only one out of eight talk about God once a week or more. Yeah. And so one of the things I got a kick out of this, actually, because you called it, and I call it this too, Christian ease. So when you're in the church and you hear these words, you know, for me, this is very familiar. But for someone outside of my faith tradition, for example, I was talking to friends of mine who grew up in a different denomination. And I told them, you know, a friend said about her son's girlfriend, she said, well, does she have Jesus in her heart? And the son said, well, I don't know. And I told this to my friend who shares the same denomination as the girlfriend. And my friend said, Stephanie, I believe in God, but we just don't use those words. That's not how we describe it. We don't say Jesus is in our heart. So we can't, do we alienate people when we use these kinds of terms? And I think that's what I loved about your book, because you're not saying stop talking about God. It makes people uncomfortable. You're saying, let's figure out a new way to talk about God. Yeah. How do we attract people to this wonderful idea of following Jesus instead of giving them the holy heebie-jeebies? You know, there are kind of two kinds of sacred speech that I talk about in this book. One is what you might call culturally Christian language, and that's Christianese, right? That's things like if, if you've ever prayed for you know a hedge of protection or asked Jesus into your heart. That's cultural Christian lingo. That's the language that we've created, the, the, the kind of jargon that we've created within church communities. And by the way, it is as weird and, and annoying as it can be. It's not, it's not inherently bad. Uh, it's a sign that community is forming. When community forms, you create language, common language. That's a mark that community exists and is happening. But I'm less concerned with, with that or perpetuating that or reviving that. I'm more interested not just in like this kind of culturally Christian lingo, but the the, the theologically Christian lingo, the, the moral language of the faith. So the word spirit, the word grace, even words that uh, you might not consider quote unquote, Christian words, but they're definitely sacred words or spiritual words. So kindness words, encourage words, and compassion words. When you look at the data, all of these words have fallen in usage over the the last hundred years or so. And so I'm asking the question, does it matter if we're not talking about grace does it matter if we're not talking about courage or spirit? What does it matter? And, you know, I obviously, I thought when I looked at this, I thought, oh, uh, when you look just at at Christians, that number will go up. Surely Christians themselves are talking a lot about God and they're they're surely they're, they're speaking God with regularity. And as you pointed out, they're not. Even even practicing Christians are struggling to talk about God and God things, spiritual things on a regular basis. 
And what's interesting is uh, when you say, does it matter if we talk about this? And I'm thinking, as I'm reading your book, Jonathan, I'm thinking about where I am. I'm 59 years old. I have two sons who are in their 20s. They were raised in the church. They don't actively go to church now. They believe in God. They're not, you know, but we don't talk about it a lot. Well, they would tell you that I talk about it too much. But I actually don't think I talked about it a lot when they were growing up. We went to church. They went to their Sunday school. I went to my Sunday school. I went to my women's Bible study. My husband went to his men's Bible study. We went to church every Sunday. They did all the activities. But I don't think we sat around the dinner table and casually talked about Jesus as a friend. What's interesting is when my mother was my age and I was their age, she was a very strong Jesus follower. But her hook to try to get me interested was to say that if I wanted to live in heaven with all of us together, I had to put my faith in Christ and follow Jesus. That's not how I think of it. I think of it as I don't view following Jesus right now as getting out of avoiding hell in the future, I kind of view it as not living in hell in current day. Like you could experience peace and contentment. What I thought was fascinating about your book is you talked about studies about this subject. So specifically, you had a quote from A.W. Tozer. What comes to mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And you said that half of Americans believe God is angry, authoritarian, or critical. And that actually causes anxiety and depression and all of the things that we're seeing in our society today, especially with people in their 20s. Yeah. Conversely, you talked about a study that demonstrated what happens when people believe that God is a loving, benevolent God. I want to yeah. let you talk about that. Yeah, there's a there was a study that I quoted that was done by Baylor University, and it sorted God into kind of four categories. Authoritarian is a biggie. That means that God has a high level of anger and a high level of engagement. And uh, that is a God that many, many people in the United States believe in. And I bet there are a lot of people who were raised in church who believe in that kind of God. That is a God that has been made popular by medieval art. Uh, that is a God who's been made popular by the sermons of preachers in the Second Great Awakening. Uh, that's a God who's been made popular in uh, neo-fundamentalism and neo-fundamentalist contexts in the United States. So people who grew up in churches that belong to the so-called religious right, or even people who you know, we're introduced to, I was seeing this online recently, and it was true of me, who in, in high school were asked to read Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. You know, these kind of infernalistic, angry God images that God is intimately involved in the world and also really, really angry. There's also a critical God who has a high level of anger, but isn't all that involved. So God's mad at you, but not really doing much about it. There's the distant God, which is a low level of anger and a low level of engagement. He's not mad at you, but he's not involved. So why worry about it? And then the benevolent God is highly engaged and a low level of, of anger. That's, uh, that's the category I think I would fall in now. What's interesting is, is that when you believe in this kind of God, uh, these studies show that it actually has a formative effect on your personality, that you can become angry, temperamental in the way that God is, that you can, uh, you, you, you know, we were made 
in God's image. And we are always making ourselves in our God's image. And that is something that we do uh, unconsciously, but we become the thing that we worship, or you would say we become the thing that we love, that we claim to love. Interesting. And so when you talked about, you know, believing God is loving and kind, what we're really talking about is, at least for me, is going back to the Bible and trying to get to know who Jesus is, what he said, what he did. And what's fascinating to me is so much theology that I've heard preached doesn't line up with what he said. So sometimes someone will say something to me and I'll say, you know, I haven't read that. They'll say, oh, well, um, I haven't either, but that's just what I have in my head. I've kind of formed that theology. When that's, if we get too far away from really learning who he is, I think it that's when it gets dangerous. We make our own stuff up. Yeah, that's exactly right. Jesus becomes, well, Jesus is for Christians what God looks like, God with a face on. And and I think we forget that. You know, the the hard thing is is that you get you get flashes of God or depictions of God in the Bible that feel somewhat difficult to reconcile. And so people will say, well, how do you know? if God is more like this or God is more like that. And I say, you know, if ever you get lost, you just come back to Jesus because Jesus we know is the truest representation of what God is like. And so if we we read something that feels not quite right, we can then bring it back to whether or not it's reconcilable with what we know to be true of Jesus in the gospels. And that can alert us to something more that is going on in the Bible that we might have missed in other passages, particularly in, in some of the early books of, of the Old Testament. Well, that's right. And, you know, um, Andy Stanley has been criticized talking about, you know, not letting our questions or our confusion about some of the Bible be a stumbling block to Jesus. You know, right. it's, well, wait a minute. You know, I don't believe this particular Bible story. Well, you know what? You talk about this in your book, allowing room for mystery. Like the certainty, are we supposed to be so certain? Whenever I can't figure it out, I just remember that passage in the Bible that says, now I see in a mirror dimly, then face to face. I'm not supposed to understand it all, which doesn't mean I don't care. It just means I cannot possibly understand it all. Yeah. Am I supposed to? I'm with you. I, you know, At this point in my life, we see God as a benevolent, loving God. So when you talk about, if we don't talk about God, you said this, the future of the Christian religion hangs in the balance. Mm -hmm. So you have a really practical part in your book at the end. How do we talk about God in a way that will attract people back to Jesus? Now you talk in the book about, and I think this is interesting, about the decline in church attendance. But we know church attendance isn't the only measurement of spirituality, but it is certainly an indication. Why do you think young people are leaving the church in particular? There's a web of answers, but I'll give you um, some of them. One of them is, is that uh, the digital age has made us less in need of physical connection, or we th at least think that we are in less need of it. We're, we're, we are used to connecting with people in all kinds of non-physical ways. And so, you know, it's like asking the question, why aren't young people going back to the office? It's a similar question. Whether it's good for us or not, there's a perception that it's not necessary. 
And so there's some of that, the way that technology has shaped a generation of people, you know, neither of us were digital natives in the way that young people are. They came into a world where they have just known this to be the case, that you connect with people over Zoom or you can connect with them in person. And there are all kinds of of ways that that forms us and shapes us. In some cases, it's uh, a protest. They they don't go to church. And there was a study that was done by Barna not too many years ago that looked at all of the reasons that young people leave the church. And, you know, one of them, they said, was that they felt like, you know, that the church was unscientific, that they they knew they knew that churches were didn't didn't sort of accept the things that were true that they thought were true. Some of them said churches were shallow. Some said that they felt that they were overprotective or controlling. Some said that their experiences related to sexuality and sexual orientation were often simplistic or judgmental uh, because the church has been heavily influenced as a reactionary mechanism to the sexual revolution of the 1960s. So you go to a lot of churches and they're talking a lot about sex. And uh, young people feel it can feel a little judgmental when they're in a period where they're trying to figure it out. And some people feel that that the church doesn't welcome their doubts. So you have a whole lot of people, even if you look at the data, the data shows that the the largest, the fastest growing demographic among young people today is not atheist or agnostic. It's what you would call the spiritual, but not religious. Um, These are people who say they pray regularly. They go to yoga classes. They sit in silence. They may still read the Bible. They will say, yes, I absolutely believe in God or a higher power. They're deeply spiritual people. They're not going, ah, this stuff's stupid. I hate all of this. They are still wrestling with spiritual questions. They just no longer see the institutional church and its leaders as credible to answer those questions for them. And so they're doing them in outside of the four walls of the church. There are benefits to that. There are also some downsides to that, to having a kind of freewheeling, hyper-individualistic spirituality. There are a lot of risks and, and dangers to that as well. Well, Jonathan, you are a pastor. You are, a, you know, you've been to seminary. In addition, I've talked about you being a writer and I've talked about you being a voice in the media, but you are a pastor. So when you are, like you said, you're preaching this Sunday as a guest pastor, what are the hot topics in the faith today that you, I I haven't read it because I couldn't download it, but there was, you have an article that talks about the five challenges the church is facing today. What are those? Well, you know, they've they've changed uh, to some degree, even since I've, I've written that. I'll tell you one that's right off the bat, which is I think AI is a huge threat to, to the church in, in some ways. It's a, a place where pastors will now be able to write sermons without actually doing the work. And they can, you can go right now to chat GPT and it can do that. Uh, it can create it can serve as your uh, church secretary or assistant. It can interact with people in automated ways that are becoming increasingly difficult to distinguish from human beings. Uh, you want to send an email out to your congregation? Just tell it what you want it 
what you're looking for and it will generate that email for you. And um, that there's a temptation there, I think, because so many churches are looking for ways to increase capacity with small budgets and, you know, a, a small amount of personnel. And so AI in this next phase is going to, uh, it's going to create a challenge, a temptation to the way that we, the way that we run a church. Uh, I think in some ways, social media, to some extent, in a secondary way is a challenge to the church, because it is now increasingly difficult for people to tell what's true and what's not true. And so when it comes to kind of notions of truth, there's a kind of cultural cynicism, a kind of who can know for sure attitude. And so much of what what religion is about is finding out what is true. It's a search for what is true. In some cases, it's the capital T truth, uh, that is God, that we always approximate, but never actually catch up to it. We get closer to it and closer to it, but we never quite, you know, get our arms around it. So I think I think that's a, a huge challenge. I think there's also just this onslaught of scandals that is destroying the credibility of the church. People don't want to be a part of something uh, if unless they're absolutely sure that they can be safe doing it. And there's some real questions now about whether children, women, people of color, the LGBTQ community will feel safe inside the four walls of the church. And so when the church becomes really a space for straight white men and is somewhat questionable if you walk in with a different identity, then people go, you know, I I don't have to go anymore. You know, there was a time when you couldn't get elected to public office unless you were a member of a church. You weren't considered respectable unless you were a member of a church. So there was a kind of cultural pressure to go to church, even if you didn't, even if you didn't feel comfortable there. There's no such pressure today. In fact, if you go to a church, it can be a real risk for you. Maybe the pastor says something you don't like and somebody calls you out and you're at risk of being canceled for something that your pastor says. So you're actually disincentivized from going to a church. And if you add over top of that questions about your own personal safety or inclusion in that community, well, you you know, you don't have to work very hard to convince someone to stay away, to saturate those places with their absence. So I think in, in the 21st century, and that's just to name a few of them, I think that the church is facing a number of seemingly insurmountable hurdles that's really calling in a question about whether the church can survive in its current form, or at least uh, at its current size in the next generation. I'll tell you too, along alongside reality, here's another thing that's coming just to t- put this out there. It's like AI. A lot of churches aren't talking about it, and yet it's a threat. VR, virtual reality, is another one. We're, we are increasingly going to be going to business meetings and showing up to our offices from our living rooms with visors on and interacting with people. There was a Facebook uh, or a meta advertisement about this recently. You'll go to your workout class. You'll go to your you know VR, the gap between what virtual reality is like and what actual reality is like. That is narrowing. And in our lifetime, uh, that's going to reach a, a point where they are nearly indistinguishable. So what does it mean if now I'm showing up to a church virtually? 
Uh, maybe that church is not even in my own community. Maybe I decide that I like a church in Australia or California. Is Can I achieve the kind of community that those those faith spaces are designed for like that? I don't know. Uh, that's a giant open-ended question, but you can't just simply say, well, we're not going to do any of that because eventually people will and and potential congregants will flock to it. So there are a whole range of questions right now that I would say most churches are working so hard to simply pay the light bill and keep enough people coming and sitting in their pews and chairs to keep the lights on that they don't even have the energy to dialogue about some of the real threats to religion that we're seeing coming at us very, very quickly. Well, I really appreciate that because two of those I had never even considered, like AI. I think it's only in the past year that I've known what that meant. I mean, without saying it, you know, artificial intelligence, Mm -hmm. virtual reality. But these are, we've all watched our kids with social media. We all know. So then the question becomes, how do we meet people where they are? But to your point, community is the most important thing. We do watch our church online because we're away from our city six months a year. But that doesn't replace, for me personally, getting together with the six women every week. That That's just different. We need each other and we need to be able to be honest, you know, able to be honest and able to trust instead of, you know, I read a Christian author saying once for some people, Sunday is the most stressful day of the week. Because if you're going to church and you have to keep up an image or a facade. So we we desperately need that community where people can can connect with other Christians who might have doubts, Right. I could talk to you all day long. I am excited. You said, Jonathan is preaching in a city near me this Sunday, and I think I'm going to go. I cannot wait to hear you in person. I want to thank you so much for your time. I want to, we'll put it in the show notes, but I'm going to tell everyone Jonathan's website, jonathanmerritt.com is great. Lots of great resources. He has books. He actually teaches a writing course, which we didn't get a chance to talk about that, but go to his website, learn about that, sign up for his newsletter. And get this book, Learning to Speak God from Scratch, because all of us who really do love this guy, Jesus, and really want the people in our life to understand him without being intimidated, we could really learn from Jonathan's book and his process at the end for how to put it in practice. So thank you very much. Oh, my gosh. I look forward to seeing you Sunday. My pleasure. Oh, my gosh. Thank you. (laughs) Have a great day, and I'll see you Sunday. I'll be waving from the audience. All right. Thanks for listening today. We hope you're inspired. And if you like the episode, please take a moment to go to your podcast platform and follow us and leave a review so more people can find us. Now go out and be the pivotal person that you are.